athlete for a sports team, the same is true. Have they demonstrated good performance and potential on the field? And this, this is true, or it used to be for political office as well, right? The most capable candidates who have integrity and a good voting record on certain issues tend to get the votes from members of their party. We value qualification, right? We, we don't want unqualified people doing important jobs, right? We value qualification. But God does not work this way when it comes to salvation. God does not work this way when it comes to salvation. In fact, God often chooses the least expected and, and the seemingly least qualified people to include in his plan of redemption. Take, for example, Jacob. Jacob was the younger son. He didn't have the place of, of the firstborn that Esau did, and yet God chose Jacob to receive his covenant. God chose Gideon, a man who was weak and fearful, uh, a man who no one in Israel would think would be a, a, a mighty warrior, a deliverer. And yet God chose Gideon. God chose King David, the youngest in his family and a simple shepherd boy, to be king over Israel. And there are many other examples in Scripture. These are just a few. What we see when we look at the storyline of the Bible is that God's ways and God's values are much different than ours because God's goals are much different than ours. In our text this morning, Jesus teaches us that God conceals the gospel from some in order to leave them in unbelief, and he reveals his son to others in order that they might be brought into fellowship with him. And all of this, Jesus will teach us, is according to God's good, mysterious, and sovereign will. Let's look at our text, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help as we come to Scripture today. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active. Lord, that it teaches us about you. It teaches us about us. It lays out for us who you are, the demands of your law, and what you have done for us to provide salvation, and what our response must be. And Lord, as we go through your word, we encounter particular portions that are more difficult for us to understand as fallen humans. And we encounter parts of your scripture that do not seem to operate according to human wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray for your help this morning that as we hear the words of Jesus, as we consider what he says today, that we would not consider these things in human wisdom but according to spiritual wisdom, according to the full counsel of your word, help us, Lord, to submit to the teaching of Jesus Christ today, even when it comes to how we think, Lord. Help us to submit our thoughts to you today. We pray that you would exalt yourself through your word, by your spirit, and that you would build up your church in godliness today. 
Help me to proclaim what is pleasing to you and what agrees with your word. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We see two main things in our text this morning. Two main things Jesus lays out for us. The first is that the Father reveals and conceals the gospel. Verses 25 and 26. And the second truth that Jesus teaches us today is that the Son chooses to reveal the Father. And we'll see how these things connect as we go on. And rest assured, this is not just doctrine. right? We're not just talking about speculative theology. But as we'll see, what Jesus says to us this morning actually has very helpful and comforting and humbling implications for our lives. First point, the truth is concealed and revealed Verses 25 through 26. Uh, if you remember last week, we saw Jesus rebuke three Galilean cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And these were the towns where Jesus had done mighty works extraordinaire, but they had not repented. The people there had not turned to Christ in faith and repentance. They just watched what he did uh, and did not really seem to have any kind of meaningful response at all. And now after rebuking these cities, Jesus in verse 25 prays publicly. Remember, he's surrounded by crowds here, and he prays out loud while the crowds watch. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That's how he begins his prayer. He's not speaking to the crowds, but to God. This is a prayer of thanks, of worship, a prayer not asking for something, but rather a prayer of praising God, of expressing gratitude to him. But the Greek word Jesus uses is more than just gratitude. It's more than that. It really describes a glad and worshipful confession. That's what uh, the word Jesus uses here. I thank you. It's, it's really richer than that. Uh, it's, it's publicly confessing what is true about God from a grateful heart. And we'll see the reason why Jesus is publicly praising God in a moment. But notice that Jesus addresses God as his Father. This is a close relational term. Uh, one that is not um, new in the Gospel of Matthew, one that we see Jesus using often. Probably the primary word he uses in his relationship to God is Father. And then he goes on to praise the Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. The Lord of heaven and earth. This is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty of, of all things. God has created all things and they belong to him. He has power over them. He is the Lord of all creation. There's nothing in heaven or on earth that is outside of his reign or his control. He owns it all. He owns every atom, every proton and neutron. It belongs to God. And he exercises his care over the created world. He is Lord. What a wonderful picture Jesus paints for us in that simple phrase of God's fatherly closeness and his awesome might and power. Right? On, on one hand, he is near as the perfect Father. And yet, on the other, He is mighty, as the creator and sustainer of all things, and yet both are Him. A wonderful picture. And that, in and of itself, would be enough reason to praise God. Just that right there, that He is Father and that He is Lord of heaven and earth, that would be enough to worship Him. But Jesus has a more specific reason, reason for this occasion of prayer. Look what Jesus says in verse 26. Uh, excuse me, verse 25. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why? That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus 
praises and thanks the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, for concealing and revealing. For concealing and revealing. It's a very interesting and perhaps unexpected thing that we find Jesus worshiping his Father for. In order to understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here, we need to really kind of get a grip on what these things are. What are the things that the Father is revealing and concealing? Well, think about everything that's happened so far, right? Everything we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, everything we've seen and, and read and heard from Jesus, all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard him speak about the kingdom of heaven. We've seen him do amazing works of great power as he healed the sick and raised the dead uh, and, and, and gave sight to the blind and cast out demons. We've heard him claim to be the Son of Man, the promised Messiah. We've, we've witnessed all of this as uh, the people in his day did as well. These things refers to all of this. These things refers to the significance and the reality of Jesus' identity and mission. Right? If we had to really just summarize it and put it simply, these things is the gospel. It is the message of the kingdom of heaven. These things is the truth of the gospel displayed through Jesus' power and in his words and later on what he will accomplish at the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus says that the Father has concealed the truths of the gospel from some and revealed the truth of the gospel to others. That is the reason he publicly praises God here. Have you ever publicly praised God for that before? It's a little interesting that we find Jesus doing that here and perhaps it rubs us a little wrong. Now part of the reason, again, that Jesus praises and thanks the Father is because the Father is hid in the gospel from some. Jesus says that clearly. Specifically, the Father is hid in the gospel from the wise and understanding. That's a phrase Jesus uses. The intelligent. The knowledgeable. Right? That doesn't mean God hides the gospel from smart people. Okay? Uh, but it refers to people who we might think would be most qualified to understand and perceive the gospel. Right? Uh, we're, we're talking about those people who have uh, lots of religious wisdom, very, very wise in a human way. But those who are self-reliant upon that wisdom and knowledge, that's who Jesus is referring to. Those people who think they know everything about God simply by virtue of their own abilities and reason, and they think they've got it figured out. Right? They trust in their own wisdom. Those are the people that Jesus says the Father is hid in the gospel from. And in the immediate context of Jesus' day, that's the scribes, that's the Pharisees, right? And that's probably who, who is uh, being targeted here and those who follow the scribes and Pharisees, who trust in their great learning but in reality are blind and cannot see or hear the message of the kingdom of heaven. And this is a general principle of how things work in God's system. He withholds his grace from the self-reliant and works against their pride. He leaves them in the blindness of their so-called wisdom. The prophet Isaiah pronounced God's judgment upon those who trust in their own understanding. Isaiah 5.21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. The apostle Paul speaks of how God's plan of salvation flies in the face of earthly wisdom. 
and how God's wisdom actually operates in a completely different way as opposed to worldly wisdom. We read it this morning, 1 Corinthians 1. Well, Paul writes, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God's plan of salvation is foolishness to the world. Those who are wise in the world do not consider true wisdom wisdom. They actually know nothing at all. They cannot and will not see the realities of what God is doing and has done through Christ. They are blind to the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a level at which they don't want to see it. right? There is a level at which uh, they are willfully resisting what God has done in Christ. And they are willfully resisting God's plan and His revelation. They do not want to see it or know it. And we see it all the time in our own day, right? I don't need Jesus to make me right with God. I have my own relationship with God, right? I know how this goes. I've got it figured out. I don't need Jesus. I don't need what God has declared as the way of salvation. Yeah, Jesus was a good teacher, but I'll be able to get into heaven. I'm a pretty good person, right? That's what God really wants. He's not concerned about how often you know you go to church or whether you actually believe in Jesus. He just wants you to live a good life, and, and that's all I'm doing. So I'll be okay. God grades on a curve. I'll, I'll be fine. Right? Or even Christianity, that's Stone Age religion. Right? That's just a bunch of shepherds writing scrolls in the desert, making up stuff that they're stealing from the Egyptians. You know, all these myths that they're just you know, uh, appropriating, right? That's, that's just foolishness. That's for uh, old-fashioned bigots. All of that is being wise and understanding, right? We are so enlightened now in a modern society um, that we don't need Christianity. And yet that wisdom is purposefully being unwilling to accept God's grace. But though there is this level of willful resistance we cannot avoid the ultimate reason that the, the wise and understanding cannot understand or accept the message of the kingdom of heaven. And that is the reason Jesus gives to us here. God has concealed it. He has hidden it from them. He has hidden it from them. Now, make no mistake, that doesn't mean that God uh, takes people who are genuinely searching for him and says, nope, that door's closed. I'm going to blind you now. I'm going to send you off that direction, spin you around and send you the wrong way, right? That's not what God does. The Bible says that all people are born in that state of naturally resisting God. No one seeks after Him, Romans 3 says. What God does is leave them in their state of blindness. He leaves them there. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What's Paul's point? The the natural state of a person is a spiritually blind one. You could have the most PhDs in the world, but if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are blind. Those who rely on worldly wisdom and human thought, Paul says, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they do not have the Spirit of God. God has not given them his spirit. He leaves them in their blindness and lets them continue down their path of self-reliance and away from the kingdom of heaven. Now, God does not 
do that for every person, right? There are many that God brings out of that worldly wisdom and saves and shows the truth to. We could use the Apostle Paul as an example of that, right? A man of great learning, and yet God saved him. But we're talking about the general principles of how God works. He leaves them in their blindness and conceals the gospel from them. And yet, on the, on the other hand, while Jesus praises God for concealing the gospel, he also praises God for revealing the gospel. In contrast to those who are wise and understanding, Jesus thanks the Father for revealing the truths of the gospel to little children. Little children. Uh, that's, that's almost the complete opposite picture, right, of wise and understanding. Little children. And the term Jesus uses here paints this picture of those who are immature and remain dependent upon others. Right? Uh, we got to church this morning. My son did not eat very much breakfast at home. We get here and he's like, Daddy, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. He can't get food for himself. Right? He, even though there may be food out there, he doesn't know what to do. He has no idea. So I have to go get food for him. Right? He is a little child. He's dependent upon me. The humble and lowly do not rely upon themselves. They do not re- rely on their own wisdom. They do not rely on their own understanding. They trust in the Lord and are like dependent children before Him. Father, what can we do? What can we have but that comes from You? And that's what Jesus' disciples are like. And in fact, Jesus uh, described His disciples as little children in Matthew 10, 42, just a chapter ago. And and think about who Jesus' disciples are for a second. They're not the Pharisees. They're not the religious scholars. They're not lawyers. They're not these high and lofty positions, right, with, with great um, accolade and education. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're political terrorists, right? They are uh, rough in, in society, right? Rough, uneducated people. They can't rely upon their own religious wisdom because they don't have any. They don't have any. And to these kinds of people, Jesus says, the Father has revealed the truth of the gospel. He has made the kingdom of heaven perceptible. And just as it's a general principle that God opposes the proud, it is also a general principle that he draws near to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5. We read in Psalm 138, 6, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. He regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus is the Lord who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Those who would be least qualified, from the world's perspective, those little children, are the ones who chooses, or who God chooses to reveal Christ to. And this explains, probably, why the wise and understanding towns of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, the scribes, the Pharisees, have not repented or received Christ, while the, the little children, like the disciples, like the centurion, like the lepers, like the paralyzed man, like the woman with the issue of blood, the blind and the mute, 
did repent and receive Christ. God had chosen to conceal the truth of the gospel from those who trusted in their own wisdom and in themselves and to reveal it to those who recognized their needy condition before him. And there is something mysterious about this. There is something mysterious about this. And we must be too careful to just tighten the screws down and say this is exactly how God works. Now the Bible gives us a lot clearer of a picture than I think we realize. But at the same time, what Jesus is saying is a little bit mysterious. After all, on one hand, all people are born equally sinful and depraved. We know that. The Bible is very clear about that. Everyone is born equally far from God. And so there is a sense in which everyone comes into this world relying on their own wisdom, being opposed to God. And so we, we cannot attribute a person's humility before God to them and their, their personality, right? Yet on the other hand, there is a personal responsibility that all have to believe the gospel and turn from their sin. So why is it that some are found in this self-reliant, worldly, wise place and that others are more like little children, seeing the glories of Christ, realizing their need for God? Why, why are some content to rest in their own wisdom and yet others realize they are spiritually bankrupt? Why is that? Jesus tells us in verse 26, and this gives us some clarity, but it will never quite fill in all the gaps that we may desire it to fill in. But Jesus says clearly in verse 26, it is the will of God that this be so. It is the will of God that this be so. It is God's will that some are found resting in their own wisdom, and that others are like little children. That is ultimately God's will playing out, not primarily something in people. One person has more spiritual goodness than another. That's, that's, not, that's not biblical. Jesus says it is God's will. It is His decree. That doesn't mean God is the direct cause. It doesn't mean that God goes around again saying, I'm going to now make you rest in your own wisdom. I'm going to now you know, make you X, Y, Z. God does intervene in our lives. He does change our hearts. But when Jesus is talking about the will of God, he's talking about the cosmic decree that has laid out history from end to end. God's will is that it be so. The NASB translates verse 26 in a way that's a little more faithful to the Greek. This way was well-pleasing in your sight. This way was well-pleasing in your sight. In the ESV we read, such was your gracious will. According to Jesus, God finds it to be good. He finds it to be gracious, pleasing to himself to conceal the gospel from some and to reveal it to others. God views that as a good thing, and Jesus views that as a good thing. Does that, does that rub us the wrong way? Does that rub us the wrong way that Jesus actually views God leaving some in their unbelief as a good thing. There's a little bit of attention for us as human beings there, isn't there? But Jesus is not bashful about this. Uh, Jesus is actually emphatic about this. At the beginning of verse 26, he, he has an emphatic yes 
Yes, this is so. This is God's will. This is his prerogative. Jesus is not shy about this. Sometimes when people ask us difficult doctrinal questions, we get a little shy, right? Well, I don't want to I don't want to come across the wrong way, right? Maybe we're talking about the doctrine of hell or the doctrine of election or the doctrine of the Trinity, something that's, that's a difficult doctrine. And we soften it up, right? Because we don't want to offend people. That's not operating in Jesus here, right? Jesus is not bowing to that desire to please others. He doesn't really care what people think. He's praying to his Father. Jesus ultimately tells us that people remain in their unbelief because it is God's will. Again, this is... Probably Jesus' explanation why Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida have not responded to the, to the gospel. The Father did not will to open their eyes to the identity of his Son at this point in time. It may happen later. God chooses when and how to open one's eyes to the truth, if he opens them at all. Again, this is a difficult thing to wrestle with. But it is something we must wrestle with. We can't just cut these verses out of the Bible because they make us a little uncomfortable. We need to wrestle with what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' statement does not get rid of the universal responsibility of all people to repent and believe the gospel. Okay? It's not what Jesus is doing here. But it does reveal that ultimately it is God's will that some would remain blind and others would see. Why is it that somebody came to you and shared the gospel with you? That was God's will. That was God's will. They're not operating as rogue agents, right? <laughs> Where'd that Christian go? You know, I can't find him. They're out there evangelizing. No. God purposefully sends people to bring the gospel to those he is going to open the eyes of. And yet at other times, he sends people to bring the gospel to those that he chooses to leave in unbelief. Could God open the eyes of every person to his son? Yes, he could. God is able to do that. Has he chosen to do this? No. Jesus tells us here, no. We are all born with the same level of spiritual deadness. We are all born with the same amount of corruption in our hearts. Nobody is born sensitive to God's things. Nobody comes into this world having a new heart, right? The Apostle Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does that sound like people who are seeking God? No, no. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we're just, you know, free-willing ourselves in sin to hell, God, who is rich in love, at the right time and at the right place according to his will, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, but God, the scripture is abundantly clear, Jesus is abundantly clear here that the only reason a person believes in Jesus is because the Father has revealed the truth of the gospel to them, opening their eyes to Christ, giving them a new heart, a new nature, so that they can and will come to the Lord that they once opposed and rebelled against like a child. That's but God. Not but you, not but me, but God. This is God's will. And notice again, Jesus 
declares this to be an unambiguously good thing. And how could it not be? How could God's will be anything but good? Even the parts we don't understand, God is an abundantly, perfectly good God. All that He does is good. Do you believe, and, and this is a hard question, but it is worth wrestling with, do you believe that God's sovereignty over salvation, that His will to call some and not others, is good? Is good. Do you believe that that is good? Do you agree with Jesus' evaluation here of God's sovereign will? Because if we don't agree with Jesus, He's probably not the one who's wrong. And, and, and listen, brothers and sisters, I know that this is a difficult text in a lot of regards. It is a difficult concept to accept because it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair from a human perspective, right? It doesn't seem fair. You wouldn't say I was fair if I just had my kids and I say, you know what, I'm going to give you a cupcake and you're out of luck. We wouldn't say that was fair from a human perspective, right? And we ask, doesn't God want all individuals to be saved? Doesn't everyone deserve a chance at salvation? But again, these are human thoughts. Do they reflect God's own revelation of His will that we see in Scripture? His sovereignty to save some and not others? Because the Bible's clear about, about this. Nobody deserves a chance to be saved. Nobody deserves that. Right? God's not obligated to give that to anybody. He is not an equal opportunity Savior. And the amazing thing about it is that He would save one person at all. That's amazing, that He would save one person at all. One sinful, rebellious wretch who has spent their life breaking His law and opposing His will and, 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 and living in a way that is dishonoring to Him. Why would God save anybody like that? So the fact He would save one is amazing. And that is His mercy. Paul in Romans 9 talks about God's desire to display mercy to some and justice towards others. Is God good in His justice and His mercy? Yes, He is. Can we understand His purposes behind this down to the details? No, probably not. We accept what He gives us in Scripture as true, but at the end of the day, there is a point at which we must Agree with God's declaration in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The reality is this, the problem is not that God decides to show mercy to some and justice towards others. The problem is that we humans often refuse to submit our thoughts to God's thoughts as revealed in His Word. But in reality, the biblical teaching that God reveals Christ to some and not others according to His will should not make us proud. It should do the opposite. It should humble us. It should humble us. Why would God show grace to me? Why would He show grace to you when we consider the life that we lived in rebellion against Him? What good things can we find there? What merit can we find to present before God? None. 
Nothing. Even the best works that we do now by the Spirit's help are not enough to save us and often are stained with our sin and our flesh. Why do you believe in Christ but not your sibling or your children or your neighbor or your parents? It is not because there's anything better in you or anything better in me. And sometimes we look at our unbelieving friends and family and they are at times kinder than we are, more generous than we are. And while that probably should not be the case, it makes us realize God has shown mercy to us for the sole reason that it is His gracious will. He has opened your eyes to Christ and given you a heart to receive Christ because of His good will. He's not obligated to do that to us, but He has done it for you if you are a Christian, and He's done it graciously and freely. Brothers and sisters, that should humble us. The mystery of God's will in salvation should humble us. Should it make us stop praying for our unbelieving friends and family? Of course not. We must continue to pray. But should it humble us rather than make us prideful? Yes. Yes. So we must ask, can, can I worship God and give Him thanks for the goodness and graciousness of His will in all things, all things, even if I cannot understand them? Like this, why God would leave some in unbelief and open the eyes of others. Like my suffering, like the trials that I don't understand, like the struggles with my own sin. Can I worship God and give Him thanks like Jesus does here for the goodness and graciousness of His will even when I don't understand it. That's what Jesus does here, right? And part of the reason Jesus has no difficulty with this is because he is perfectly in line with his Father's will, as we see in our next point. The Son chooses to reveal the Father, verse 27. Jesus has now finished his prayer, it seems, as we come to verse 27, and he begins to talk to the crowds again. And we see in this verse that the focus of our text changes a little bit. And Jesus now begins to talk about the relationship between the Father and the Son, between the Father and, and Jesus. But as we'll see, this is also directly connected to what we've already seen in the previous verses about God's will. And Jesus makes three statements in this verse about his relationship with the Father. The first is that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. And of course, here Jesus implicitly identifies himself as the Son. He's the Son. And this word handed over uh, describes uh, the act of entrusting something to somebody for safekeeping, right? You, know, you, you go to a coffee shop and you need to go use the restroom and you ask somebody, hey, will you watch my computer for a minute? That's, that's the picture here, handing it over, uh, giving it to somebody for a positive purpose. Will you... Take care of this. Will you steward this? Will you guard this? Again, remember, Jesus describes the Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. And uh, he, belongs, or he owns all things, right? All things belong to him. So the Father is handed all things that are his over to his Son. In other words, the Father has given the Son authority over everything. Everything. The Son is the heir of the Father. And all things are his inheritance. For example, we read in Psalm 2, 8, a conversation between the Father and the Son. 
in which the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Or John 17, 2, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus says the Father had given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you had given him. This speaks to two aspects of who Jesus is. First, it reveals that Jesus has a fully divine nature. He is the Son of God. After all, only God is able to bear such authority. Only God is able to possess all of creation. That can only be true if Jesus is divine. Second, it also speaks to Jesus' human nature, right? Two natures, one person. The eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, already shares all things with the Father. So in order for Christ to be receiving something from his Father, it is happening in his human nature, so to speak. But as we continue down the next part of the verse, the focus shifts entirely to the inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. Okay, we're talking about God the Father and God the Son here. Right? Jesus' divine nature. And Jesus speaks of the knowledge that the Son and the Father have of one another. At first, Jesus says, No one knows the Son but the Father, verse 27. No one knows the Son except the Father. There's a couple different Greek words for knowledge. The one that Jesus uses is epigonosko, which um, refers here to a full and complete relational knowledge. A full and complete relational knowledge. And how Jesus uses it means it is a knowledge without time. In the words of one commentator, this is a knowledge relationally that is eternally past, present, and future. It is a knowledge that only God can have of himself because only God is eternal. Knowledge between members of the Trinity. So only the Father recognizes and truly and fully knows the Son. And we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, human beings do not naturally and fully know the Son. Right? They have uh, not really realized who He is, which is part of the reason He's rebuking these cities. That's not true of the Father. The Father and the Son know each other perfectly, eternally. They have had a relationship without beginning and without end. Remember what happened at Jesus' baptism. The Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. As Calvin says, if we want to know about the Son, we need to listen to the Father's testimony about the Son, right? Only the Father knows the Son. And on the other hand, Jesus says, Nobody knows the Father except the Son. So just as the Father perfectly knows the Son, the Son perfectly knows the Father and has an eternal relationship with Him. What hinders the knowledge that the, the Son has of the Father? Nothing. Nothing. Shelby and I, the other day, were talking about how you know, we've been married for, for almost eight years, and you know, there's still so much to learn about each other, right? And those of you who have been married for 50 years, perhaps, you're still probably learning things too. That's not like the relationship between the Father and the Son. They already know everything. It is a perfect and complete relationship of mutual love and eternal knowledge. There's no limitations there. And that's what makes Jesus' words at the very end of the verse absolutely incredible. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. If Jesus had just said, no one knows the Father except the Son, period, where does that leave us? 
How could we know God? How could we have a relationship with Him? If nobody can know the Father except the Son, we're out of luck. But look at what Jesus says. There is a way for us to be brought into that relationship, into communion with God. Quite an amazing thing. There's some things we need to unpack here. First, we see that part of Christ's purpose and mission is to make the Father known. Part of the reason Jesus comes is to reveal the Father. John 1.18 tells us this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That speaks of Jesus making the Father known. And of course, we know Jesus' statement in John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you'd know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus comes to make the Father known to us, and if we would know the Father, we must listen to the Son. We must go through him as our mediator to have fellowship with the Father, and that is God's will, that we would have fellowship with him through his Son. But we can't ignore the other aspect of what Jesus says here too. The Son chooses those to whom he will reveal the Father. Now, God has one will. We've looked at the Father choosing in verse 25, 26, and now we see the Son choosing here. Are they having meetings about this? We're going to put this person on the list, that person, I don't think so. Let's, let's meet back next week to, uh, to finish it up, right? That's not what's happening. God has one will. He is one being. His will is not divided. The Father's will in revealing and concealing the Son is the same as the Son's will in choosing the people He will reveal the Father to. Their will is one. As Jesus says in John's Gospel, He and the Father are one. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 3, uh, 6.37 The Father and the Son are agreed in their plan to redeem a people, those whom the Father has foreknown, chosen, Called Romans 8, 29 and 30. Again, this is a mysterious thing, isn't it? Why does the Father call some and not others? Why does Jesus choose to reveal the Father to some during His earthly ministry and not others? We cannot guess. We cannot know the details and purposes of God. We cannot explain why beyond that is His sovereign and gracious will. And again, as we come to a close, is this all just theology? Is this all just theology? Now, theology matters a lot. How we think about God matters a lot. God wants us to think about Him rightly, amen? Are you sure? It's a pretty quiet amen. So doctrine matters, brothers and sisters. But doctrine always should have an impact on our lives. So how does the doctrine of what we have seen this morning in our text impact us? Number one, we must come to Christ to actually have a relationship with God. Jesus is clear, no one knows the Father except through Him, and it is only through the Son we can know the Father. Have you come to Christ in faith and repentance? Do you have a relationship with God, or do you trust in Jesus and know the Father? There's a difference. There's a difference. And number two, we must be humble regarding God's grace that He has given us in revealing the gospel to us. Again, He has not saved us because we are special, but because of who He is. So we cannot boast in ourselves, we must boast in Him alone. Number three, we must entrust ourselves to Christ because the Father has handed all things over to Him, including us. Including us. 
So we must trust our Lord Jesus to use all the Father has given him according to his goodwill in our lives. He will not lose what the Father has handed over to him. Again, that's you. That's me. And what's more, what do we need besides him? As J.C. Ryle says, if we have Christ, we have all things. So let us entrust ourselves to him. Brothers and sisters, God conceals the gospel from some in order to leave them in unbelief and reveals his son to others to bring them into fellowship with him. And all of this is according to his good, mysterious, and sovereign will. Let us offer praises to his name. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we cannot presume to know your ways. We cannot presume to plumb the depth of your will. And yet, Lord, you've given us some clear things in your word. Lord, would you help us to submit our thoughts to you? That instead of resting in our own understanding about how you work and and your will, that we would pursue the clarity of your word where it is clear. And where it is not, Lord, that we would be humble enough to trust you and to praise you for your good and gracious will in all things. Humble us under your care, under your, your mighty hand, O Lord. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.